0: Our scripture reading for this morning is from John chapter 4 verses 19 through 26 and will be read from the English Standard Version. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word.
1: Good morning. Again, mention I'd like to talk about worship this morning, no surprise there, Um, but I'd like us to consider this great passage, one of the most important passages on worship in the New Testament, because it's here in John 4, where Jesus himself teaches on worship. Zane Hodges has written, the Samaritan woman raised the subject of worship, and the Savior's reply was as pregnant a statement on this issue as had ever escaped the lips of man. Indeed, once he had uttered it, it would be impossible thereafter for anyone intelligently to ponder this theme without returning to consider those priceless words. As an utterance on worship, they were timeless and absolutely definitive. But let's set the stage by first considering worship under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there were barriers between the individual Israelite and God. At the tabernacle, the people had to stay outside. Only the priests could go into the holy place to burn incense, offer sacrifices, and so forth. The people of Israel watched worship. They didn't do worship. And only the high priest could go inside the curtain into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. The Holy of Holies was where God dwelled in the midst of His people, and yet the people could not draw near. The setup demonstrated that God was so holy and the people were so sinful that they could not come close. Spiritual distancing, so to speak. Jesus came to break down the barriers between God and man. That is why we read in the Gospels that when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple, that is the curtain barring the way into the Holy of Holies, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that Jesus by his death had removed the barrier of sin between God and his people and opened the way into his presence. One of the most tremendous aspects of new covenant worship is that we now have direct access to God and into his presence through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, we read that we are invited to draw near to God in worship with confidence and assurance because Jesus has opened the way into the presence of the Father. As we turn now to John 4, we see Jesus breaking down other sorts of barriers as well. First, Jesus breaks down geographical barriers. Go back to the beginning of the chapter with me, if you would, please. Back to verse 3. We read that Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, as you probably know, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews for a number of reasons. First of all, they were half-breeds, They were descended from the intermarriage of Jews and Gentiles, which had been forbidden by the law. The Samaritans rejected all of the Old Testament except for the first five books. And as we see in this passage, the Samaritans had established their own system of worship on Mount Gerizim in their own territory. For all these reasons, the Jews utterly detested the Samaritans. That's And that's what makes Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 so ironic, because the hero of the story is a hated Samaritan. Jesus reminds us here in verse 9, in a parenthetical note, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, if you picture the map of the Holy Land, Judea was in the south, and Galilee was in the north, with the land of Samaria in between. A Jew traveling from Judea to Galilee, south to north, would normally go to great lengths to avoid going through Samaria by crossing over the Jordan River, going up the other side, before crossing back over into Galilee. But in verse 4 here, John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. In one sense, of course, he did not have to. He could have gone around like every other Jew would have done. But John seems to be implying that Jesus had to pass through Samaria because the Father had a divine appointment for him there. Jesus later in this chapter will tell his disciples, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work And that work in this case is accomplished by Jesus through his saving conversation with the woman at the well, and through the fact that later, as verse 39 in this chapter tells us, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And so, to do the Father's will, Jesus breaks down the artificial geographical barrier put up by the Jews, and he goes right through it into Samaria. And there a shunned, lonely woman sets out alone on foot from the sound of Sychar, carrying her water jar down the dusty path leading to Jacob's well, as she had undoubtedly done hundreds of times before. But this time, unbeknownst to her, her world was about to be turned upside down, and her life was about to be changed forever. And that's why Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus breaks down the geographical barrier and heads right into Samaria for his divine appointment. Then he breaks down social and ethnic barriers. We read beginning in verse 5. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there by the way a couple weeks ago going through uptown Memphis I went by a Methodist church that's called Jacob's well a place of salvation Jacob's well was there so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour a woman from Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In that culture, it wasn't acceptable for a man to talk to a woman in public, much less for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan. But Jesus was not concerned about these contrived social and ethnic barriers He simply saw the woman as a human being and a needy one at that. And so he knocks down those social and ethnic barriers and engages the woman in conversation. And then Jesus proceeds to break down spiritual barriers. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus wants to offer her the living water of salvation, and she doesn't quite understand yet. She seems interested only in getting water to drink. But Jesus is able, able to look beneath her immediate surface desire and break through the spiritual barrier to the need of her heart. He reaches out to offer her the living water of salvation. So now Jesus, having broken through the geographical barrier, the social and ethnic barrier, and the woman's spiritual barrier, Jesus is now going to once and for all break down the religious barrier, separating Jew and Samaritan, and get to the heart of true worship. Verses 16 through 18, Jesus unearths the woman's complicated marital and relational history. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband, come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And then we're not told whether the woman is just wanting to change the subject because she doesn't want to talk about her personal life, or whether his insight really draws out of her a, a nagging question out of deep inside her. But at any rate, in verse 19, we read that the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus' insight into the woman's past and present marital situations leads her to bring up what is in effect a religious question. She refers to her people's worship on Mount Gerizim and the Jews' worship in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And her implied question is, which is correct? Which group is doing worship in the right way and in the right place? Which mountain is the mountain of true worship? And as so often happens, Jesus answers a question put to him in an unexpected and surprising way this mountain or in Jerusalem well he says neither verse 21 Jesus said to her woman believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father the hour is coming and in fact in verse 23 Jesus adds the hour is now here when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus says, in effect, I'm changing the rules. With my coming, everything is different. Verse 23, he says, The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In verse 23, and again in 24, Jesus says that true worship will be worship in spirit and truth. And the word in here is the same preposition he used in verse 21, making the contrast even more clear. Neither in this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but in spirit and in truth. Jesus seems to be saying it's no longer so much a matter of where or when you worship. But how you worship, that really matters. Those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and truth, Jesus says. Let's unpack spirit and truth. First of all, worship in spirit. The English Standard Version, which you just heard read, and many other English translations, render the word spirit in verses 23 and 24 with a small s. S while other versions capitalize the word, perhaps yours does. This is because 2,000 years after the fact, there's still a lot of debate and no final consensus on whether Jesus is referring here to the spirit of a person, small s, that is to the inner immaterial part of one's being, or whether the Holy Spirit is in view, in which case a capital S would be taken. Now, while the Holy Spirit certainly plays a key role in worship, but that's for another message, I think Jesus here is referring to the human spirit. And verse 24 seems to support that interpretation, where Jesus says, God is spirit. His nature is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, God is a spiritual, immaterial being. And therefore, people will connect with him primarily on a spiritual, immaterial level. Worship in spirit would then refer to the fact that worship must come from the inside out. It must be sincere and genuine and come out of the heart. In saying this, Jesus may well have in mind a contrast with the Jews. You'll remember how often Jesus criticized the Jewish leaders, because of the external nature of their worship, how they did it all for show. For example, in Matthew 23, Jesus says, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others.'" But within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And in Matthew 15, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Their worship was in vain, it was meaningless because it was external only and not coming from the inside out. God detests lip service. He condemns outward shows of religiosity without genuine and sincere inner devotion. He doesn't want the letter of the law without its spirit. True worship must begin on the inside in the heart. That is worship in spirit. But Jesus says true worship must not only be in spirit, it must also be in truth. It's not enough just to be sincere. True worship must be in accordance with God's revealed truth. According to his revelation, according to the scriptures, it must be done God's way. And ultimately, that, of course, means it must be through Jesus Christ, who himself is the truth. And while the concept of worship in spirit condemns the external worship of the Jewish leaders, worship in truth condemns the worship of the Samaritans. The Samaritans were very sincere, even enthusiastic in their worship on Mount Gerizim. But they had rejected God's revelation. They devised their own form and place of worship and ignored God's instructions concerning Jerusalem as the place where he was to be worshipped. And so Jesus says about the Samaritans in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. For all the Jews' failings, Jesus says, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. God's way was through his revealed truth given to the nation of Israel. So Jesus says, worship must be in spirit and truth. He says it in verse 23 and again in 24. He emphasizes it must be in spirit and in truth. Both are essential. And that's true in our day as well. Eric Alexander, the great Scottish preacher who has spoken from this pulpit, put it this way in his warning to us. What are the two great enemies of true worship throughout the whole of history? Are they not the heirs of Gerizim on the one hand, and Jerusalem on the other, zeal without knowledge on the one hand, and knowledge without zeal on the other, sincerity without truth, or truth without heart in worship. Our worship must be in truth according to God's revelation in Christ. There are many, many people in our world who are very sincere in their religious beliefs and practices, but who do not know God's truth and who reject God's Savior. There is no question that suicide bombers are sincere and utterly committed to what they consider to be an act of obedience and worship. But of course, as soon as the deed is done, they immediately realize how horribly mistaken they have been. Zeal without knowledge won't cut it. Sincerity without truth, that's not enough. But neither is truth without spirit. It's all too common in our day and in our world for many individuals and some kind of churches even to adhere to an outward form of Christianity, but a form that denies the necessity of inner regeneration and transformation of the heart and one that rejects that Christ is the only way to salvation. Knowledge without zeal, outward form without heart devotion, will not result in true worship either. Our worship must be in spirit, genuine, sincere, heartfelt from the inside out. God wants hearts of worship. Of course, we don't have to go that far to recognize the danger of hiding behind a veneer of religiosity and neglecting an inner life of worship. Before we're too hard on the Pharisees and scribes of Israel and other groups, we need to remember what that, a danger that is to all of us as well, the outside looking great while the inside is lacking. The late Memphis pastor Adrian Rogers warned us this way. If you are not worshiping God, but you are serving him, or so you think, you are making a big mistake. To pray without worship is mockery. To sing without worship is sounding brass. To work without worship is an insult to God. To teach without worship is ignorance. To serve without worship is hypocrisy. To witness without worship is perjury. The Father seeks to commune with you in worship. He is not looking for your money, your glory, or your strength. He is looking for your heart. Notice what Jesus said in verse 23 about true worshipers. True worshipers, the one who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He said, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking worshipers. Jesus never said, The Father is seeking missionaries. Jesus never said, The Father is seeking preachers. <laughs> Jesus never said, The Father is seeking Christian businessmen and women. Jesus said, The Father is seeking worshipers. That's what He wants first and foremost, from every one of us. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the rest will be added to you. He's seeking worshipers. That's what he wants, first and foremost, from every one of our lives. And we all need that balance of knowledge and zeal in our personal lives of worship, that we must feed on the word daily to gain that knowledge and then respond in prayer and praise for what the Lord shows us of himself in his word. And then we're to walk daily through life in the light of God's revealed truth and with hearts committed to living for his glory, which Romans 12.1 tells us is our spiritual service of worship. And we also need that balance of knowledge and zeal in our corporate worship. That's why Ken and his team set before us weekly services that are saturated with the Word of God, read and sung and prayed and preached, and that is why they also set before us sung expressions of heartfelt praise in response to God's gracious revelation of Himself through His Word. Zeal and knowledge, heart and head, spirit and truth. One final note, we must remember that being a worshiper is not something we can do entirely in our own strength, nor do we need to. Worship is not a work. Worship is not something we do in order to gain acceptance from God. We can worship because of God's gracious initiative, because of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, because Jesus tore down the barrier of sin and opened the way into the Father's presence and invites us to communion with him in confidence and assurance. The invitation is to draw near in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together. I'd like to give us a few silent moments that we might reflect on our own walk of worship. Thank the Father for the incredible privilege of drawing near through Christ. Ask him to help us find that delicate balance between knowledge and zeal, heart and head, spirit and truth. Let's do that now. The Father is seeking worshipers. The Father is seeking you to be his worshiper. Amen.